0: Madison, it's good to have you back for the summer, as well as our other college-bound folks. And we got Jesse Page back there, a brand-new graduate from William & Mary. We're going to try to keep him around for a little while before he goes off, but he is looking for a job, uh, something history-related, because he loves history. So we'll be in, in prayers for you that God will provide a job close to the church. Jesse, if that's OK, if that's OK. So any other college graduates or did I'm missing? Let's see. OK, good. I was uh, she was as Madison was singing about trusting the Lord and I was looking at the congregation. I was thanking God that I'm not uh, an OCD pastor because there's like this big hole in the congregation over here. It's all unsymmetrical, but it doesn't bother me. I just happen to notice it. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 this morning, and we are looking at Jesus' sermon on the Mount. And we are on Beatitude 6 of 8, if you are counting. And Jesus now turns directly to the heart and speaks to the heart of man. Not that he has not been speaking to the heart of man, but now he actually addresses the heart specifically. In verse 8 of chapter 5 of Matthew, and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you see God this morning? What does it mean to see God? Are you able to see God? That's what we will examine this morning. First thing I want to look at is what is our heart and what's wrong with it? Is it possible for people to have an impure heart and therefore not be able to see God? Well, what is the heart? When we think, I think in American speak, when we talk about the heart, um, usually we talk about it in the physical sense. We have become somewhat of a health conscientious culture. And so we want to take care of our hearts. We want to eat well and exercise. Uh, We want to try to avoid high blood pressure, stress on the heart. We want, of course, we want to try to avoid heart attacks and things like that. So when we think about the heart in our culture a lot of times it has to do with our physical health or it has to do with with emotions and feelings. So you see a lot of hearts on our Valentine's Day celebrations. And most times we'll see a a red heart and it's because if you get one you might be somebody's sweetheart or they want you to be their sweetheart. And the idea I, you know, I was thinking about what does it mean to to be a sweetheart? Because your heart doesn't have taste buds, but I guess it means that it you, you just you make my heart feel sweet. And if it had taste buds, it would taste really good because I have these affections for you or these emotions towards you. Now, one thing that I've never received in all my days is a Valentine's card with the picture of a, a, a cerebral a brain on it or some kind of brain matter that says i love you with my mind it just wouldn't be the same would it so we have to put hearts in there because it's more emotional when the bible talks about the heart and i have shared this with you many many times it's it's the whole package of a person it's your whole being it's everything that makes you you comes from the heart it's it's who you are all at once it's it's your mind, it's your will, it's the emotions, it's the very bottom of your core. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 says that um, the heart is the wellspring of life. So everything that you are, everything that comes out of you is coming out of your heart. That's your person. That's your being, the bottom of things. And so things kind of, it gives the picture of um, a spring. That's the origin of the water. It all comes from somewhere, right? Right. Well, everything that comes out of us or goes forth from us comes from our hearts. They flow out of there. <clears throat> so what, what are we really after? Our desires come from our hearts. Uh, the, the things that we trust in is a matter of what our heart wants. Um, the things that we believe, the things that we think, it all comes from our hearts And the problem with our hearts, Scripture tells us, is that um, bad things come out of it. Bad things flow from it and are planted in there and come out of our mouths sometimes or our minds. Have you ever just kind of stopped yourself dead in your tracks because you just said something, just came out of your mouth and you can't even believe you said that? Where did that come from? I didn't even know that was in me, sometimes we say. Or you're, you just stopped dead in your tracks because you had this thought and, and you started to even entertain it maybe for a few seconds or a minute. And, you, and then you stop yourself. Whoa, what is that? Where did that come from? I didn't know that was in me. So bad things can grow and do grow in our hearts. And because they're there, they come out. They find an expression through our speech or through our thoughts, through our actions one way or another they're going to come out the pharisees like to think that they could be uh, good people based strictly on external actions so by doing the right things obeying the right laws that that's what made their hearts pure jesus addressed this in matthew 23:25 through 26 And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. He's talking to men that faithfully went to temple, faithfully went to Old Testament church church. They sang their psalms to God. They gave sacrifices to God and they obeyed all of these rituals. And here is Jesus, the son of God, looking in that at them and saying, in spite of all that, you are rotten in your core. You're a rotten person in your core and you're blind to it. You can't even see it. That's kind of scary in a sense that we live in a world that that people can seem so good and kind on the outside. And on the inside, there's a rottenness there. There's a, there's a defilement there. Jesus also said in a few chapters earlier, Matthew fifteen eighteen through 20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from, of all places, you guessed it, the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft. False witness, slander. These are what defile a person. You are that person. That's why they're coming out of you. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. If you think about all of the the, the new the headlines that we read every day in the news, why is the world in such a mess? How could we create it such a mess? It all it, it doesn't. It's not in print first and then find its way into here. It is in print because it's coming out of here. It's flowing out of our hearts all over this fallen world. And Jesus isn't just picking on good manners and good health and good practices or or people's obedience to the law. Those things are good. But what he really cares about is what makes you you. He, he's caring about The very essence of our being, our heart, because that's where things flow out of. And God cares about who you really are, who I really am. And he wants to relate to us on the basis of the the reality of that and not on the basis of who we want God to think we are. Because we might have a tendency to do that. He wants to deal with us and speak to us on the basis of who we are really are. And there's no external behavior that can make our hearts clean. It's it's not enough. Jesus didn't come into the world to heal our dirty habits. He came into the world to redeem our dirty hearts, our defiled hearts, to save that. So the external things we could we could have a we could form a, a a club a married people's club that and make a vow to be the club of the cheatless for lack of better terms we could make a vow that we will not cheat on our spouses in the sense of or in the form of committing adultery and we would not perform that act and that would be a great revolutionary thing um, and everybody would love that except the, maybe the divorce lawyers it would be a wonderful, healthy thing for our society. And as wholesome as that seems, that's not far enough when it comes to having a pure heart. Because a little bit later, not too far from now in these Beatitudes, Jesus is going to say something like this. You've heard it was said you shall not commit adultery. Well, it's a good thing not to commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the actions are good, but the actions don't necessarily mean that the core has been healed or saved, that the core of our person has been touched by God, because even though we might make a vow not to perform certain actions, Society is still at risk. Why? Because there's still sin there. There's still something in there that is very dangerous to us and to others. I think one of the obviously the problem with societies or the or fallen world is that we often try to fix ourselves while we either deny or ignore God. We are just so arrogant that we think we can. We acknowledge our problems most of the time, but then we think we can fix them with With ignoring God. Without addressing the issue of our hearts. If you look at all the attempts of society or the world of how to solve our problems. They're all surface issues. They're all pharisaical issues. Where we want to change the outside and not address the inside. So you think about in our society. One of the things I think we're very blessed to have is is. Is. Welfare programs where those homes, those houses where, say, perhaps dad has bailed and you have a single mom and she's there with one, two, five kids. It's just it's very good to know that there is help available. There might be financial help available so that the kids can eat, have enough food to eat or medical help available so that they can be treated. That's a wonderful, merciful thing to have in place. But what's the real issue? What's the real problem? Does that really fix our society? Because now families where dad bailed have food to eat and medical attention. That's not the root of the problem. The question is why are dads bailing in the first place? Or why are moms bailing in the first place? That's the heart issue. Why can't they stay home? Why can't they keep that marital commitment? Why did they have children outside of marriage? I mean, you have all of these ethical and moral Issues that were addressed with. Now, if we could fix that issue, the heart and the dads weren't leaving in the first place. Now you're talking about real healing and real substance. So the problem are the broken relationships, the lying, the cheating and all of that that takes place. The rest of it is the surface issue. What would possibly fix these root issues? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. A pure heart. A pure heart would fix all of these issues that we face today. You know, the newspapers wouldn't be so juicy. <laughs> as far as um, reading about things that, that tantalize us with pushing the envelope of evil, if there were more pure hearts. So we can't neglect God and expect to fix ourselves or to fix Society, he has to be the motive. So what kind of heart does Jesus want so that this heart can turn around and actually see God? What is purity and how do we get it? Well, maybe you've been shopping or you have hobbies and you're familiar with the word pure. There's certain things that you might want that are pure, some You you can get pure honey these days. Uh, You can get, sometimes the advertisers will tell you it's pure leather as opposed to the alternative. Um, We have pure maple syrup as opposed to the syrup that I guess manufacturers put things in. Uh, You can get 100% pure beef. And if it's not 100% pure beef, you have to wonder, well, then what is it? What did they put in it? Um, You could pay a lot of money for pure gold, pure silver. So there's something about the word pure that immediately makes us think of something. It's wholesome. It's rich. It's what it's supposed to be. Well, in this context, William Barclay tells us that this Greek word is also used to describe water that's pure, metals that are pure and unmixed with alloy, And in this particular context, it carries the idea of a heart or a person that is free from the taint of evil. We're talking about an individual that is unmixed in his love and devotion to God. There's, There's no foreign ingredients in there. There's nothing alien in there that would cause any kind of obstruction or hindrance in this relationship with his God. So it's a pure, unmixed devotion. That's the kind of biblical purity that we're talking about. And this biblical purity has a history in the Old Testament. And some scholars believe that Jesus is even referring to this passage in the Old Testament when he speaks these words. And that comes from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. David says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob? So, what is a, a pure heart, according to David? It's it's a heart in which there's there's no falsehood, there's no fakery, there's nothing, there's no pretense in there. It's just it's the real deal. What you see is what you get, and it shuns deception, it shuns hypocrisy, it wants to be uh, whole all the way through. In it, It's not fake, it's not misleading or deceptive, and it wants to see God in that way. That's, that's how that heart longs for God. It's just this pure longing, this pure desire to see God in that way. As opposed to the idols in the Old Testament, the big problem with people in the heart is that it's just filled with false gods. It's filled with idols. Ezekiel 36.25 says... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. What is the uncleanness of the heart from all your idols? I will clean you. So being pure of heart has to do with purifying our hearts from idols. Well, what are idols? Idols are those things in our lives that we have clung to our buoys in place of God. It's what we live for. It's what we want because in our minds we think that's what I need to make me feel safe, secure, to put my spirit at rest or at ease. So if we have, if, if power is our idol, then we're only going to feel secure when we have reached the top of things, when we're on top of life. And the threat to that idol, the biggest fear to that idol would be losing our edge. Or slipping down the rank. If love is our idol, then we're miserable until that person that we love loves us back. Or that thing that we love loves us back. And the biggest fear of the idol of love, of course, is rejection. Or it could be the idol of control where we have set within our own minds or lives certain boundaries for ourselves, rules and regulations. That we have set standards, we've set for ourselves, and as long as we can stay within them, then we feel very in control of our lives. A certain weight, a certain appearance, a certain achievement, a certain demeanor, and that way we can be in control of our lives. And then, of course, the biggest fear in that for that idol would be the fear of failure, of not being able to keep those. So. Idols are really a way for us to attempt to stay in control as opposed to surrendering our hearts to God and actually trusting him to come through. If you think about the fears of our idols, rejection, the fear of losing, the fear of failure. When you have Christ, he never rejects us. Isn't it awesome the way the Bible speaks to the the greatest needs and fears that we have? The, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of losing. God is there all the time. He knows who we are. He loves us for who we are. And then sometimes we hear about idols in our minds. We're thinking, don't, don't tell me, pastor, that all I need is God. I really need these idols. I need this thing because I, I, I get all ruffled when I don't have it. Exactly. You get all ruffled when you don't have it because it's a false thing. And it's just making you anxious. It's setting you up for a fall. Our hearts need to be sprinkled clean. We see the same thing in the New Testament, James 4, 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's it mean to be double-minded? He tells us in the few verses before that in James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what is a double-minded person? Somebody who has a divided heart. It's not pure. It's mixed. I really I really love, I want this Christian thing, but I love the world. You know, I want this, but I want this. And how can you do life like that? It's a divided heart. It's, it's a double-minded person. It's a heart that is filled with idols. It's, it's like the, the, the married person that wants love on the side. You know, I really, I love my family. I love my spouse. I like all of this, but I also love this. It doesn't make for a very peaceful household. Purity is allegiance to one thing. It's no wonder that the greatest command, the utmost command, is to love God with what? All your heart, mind, soul. Everything about you. It's not love God with part of it or most of it or a piece of it. God clearly wants all of it. That's a pure heart. A single-mindedness. It's, it's to want that one thing. It's the idol's. Ditch the love for the world. Ditch the the evil things that our heart wants and be loyal only to God. And the Bible says we all need our hearts sprinkled. So how do you get this pure heart? If If it's the only way we can see God, then how do we get it? How do we obtain it? Well, the Bible also teaches us that though it is the only way to see God, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot fix ourselves. It's beyond our reach to obtain a pure heart. Proverbs 29 asks the, um, chapter 20, verse 9, asks the rhetorical question. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The obvious answer is nobody can say that. We cannot fix ourselves. If, if, if it is defilement comes from within us, and we turn on the spigot to wash our hands, and out of that spigot just is more filth. How can we cleanse ourselves from the filth? And it reminds me of a scene um, years ago when I worked on a farm that had lots of animals, and one of them was pigs, and not to be disrespectful to this guy, but there was a young guy in the neighborhood who loved to hang out at the farm, but he was um, didn't think right, and... You know, he just loved to hang out with, with the guys in the farm. But he was there and, and he was all heart. He'd do anything you tell, tell him. But he was in the in the pig pen and the slop was about this deep um, one day. And I was feeding the pigs. When he was in there, I don't know what he was doing. But he's he's got his slop boots on. But it, he, it kind of like dawn, dawns on him. I'm, and this is kind of nasty. I'm out here in the middle of the pen and this slop is almost coming into my boots. So... He, he, he bounces himself on one leg and he takes one boot off and he kind of shakes it off. And then he's balanced and he realizes, why did I just clean this boot off? Because as soon as I put it back on, what am I going to step right back into? Right back into the slop. And, and that's, that's our predicament. We can take this little part and clean it up. We can take this little part and clean it up, but we're standing in defilement. We're not really clean. Now, we might think we're clean and we might only focus on that one part. But we are not clean. Matthew chapter 19 tells us about when this very, very godly Jewish person came to Jesus and He is telling Jesus about all the commands that he has obeyed. And Jesus, of course, brings to his mind the one that he had forgotten. In Matthew chapter 19, 25 to 26, when the disciples heard this, by the way, this is the one when Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions and then follow me. And he wasn't willing to do it. Jesus revealed his heart. The disciples were astounded and they said, Um, Who then can be saved? You know, this guy who is like nine out of ten can't even be saved. Then who possibly could be saved based on your high standard? And Jesus's answer is with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God creates a purity for us and in us so that we can pursue God. If we can't fix ourselves and cleanse our own hearts, then how do we get a pure heart? Well, we stop trying to turn on our own faucet and we stand under the grace of God, the cleansing water of God, the blood of God, and we let it flow upon us. It's all grace. We come to God in faith. And we come to God with that poor spirit, with that spirit that mourns over sin, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness and we say, Lord Jesus, cleanse me. I can't cleanse myself. This stuff is flowing out. It needs to be supernatural. And we, and we obtain that by faith. Acts fifteen nine says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And, of course, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Who does the cleaning? God does the cleaning. And we live in a world that wants to try to fix itself and yet ignore God. How do we do that? Well, we sometimes we try to fix ourselves through religious regulations and observances and then present ourselves clean to God as if we earned our own salvation. That doesn't fly or the secular means where we can only touch the external things like welfare programs and so forth that have a place, but it doesn't reach the heart of man. We have to cast ourselves on the grace of God and and ask God for that radical renewal. And what does God do? He gives us a new heart and he renews our mind. So now out of our hearts, good things can flow, things that are pleasing. And then he begins to sanctify us and make us as holy as he has declared us. Sanctify us because he has justified us. So God demands a humanly impossible character and then gives us that character by his grace. That's the gospel. If that character is not present in us, if there's no desire in us to love God, if there's no desire in us to walk according to his revealed word, then we should question, have we been cleansed? Or is there just that same old defilement that I have always had? Is there any kind of single devotion or single heartedness towards God? C.S. Lewis says Christianity is not out to make nicer people. But new people. It's not here to make human beings better. It's here to create an entirely new human being. It's the Ephesians. The, hu- the new humanity that Christ created. When he rose from the dead. And fills us with his spirit. And Corinthians Tells us that we are new creations. So C.S. Lewis goes on to say, God didn't come to make just faster caterpillars, but to make butterflies. So do we have that heart, that new heart? Or are we just going through the motions, trying to show God how good we are, how clean we are, when He knows different? Matthew five fifteen, eight. This people honors me with their lips, Jesus said. But their heart is far from me. It's very possible for us to go through the motions and have never been cleansed by the living God. Because we did not confess. We did not surrender. We're still trusting in our idols. But we're singing praise songs to the Lord. And then lastly, how does a pure heart help us see God? Is it possible to actually see God in this life? Well, not entirely, because the Bible teaches that if you see God, you die. No man can see me and live are the exact words. So we cannot see God in his fullness of glory. Our bodies are not made to be able to handle such a manifestation of glory would not be good for us. So when we pray about God, I just want to see you. He understands what we mean by that, because if he popped in front of us, like Moses in the cleft, he had to kind of hide him back. And even then, Moses couldn't stop from shining. And that was just barely a whisper of God. So that's how we can see God in this life. It's, it's through the shadows. It's through the whispers. It's, it's through like Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. The spirit comes and goes. You don't see it. But what you do see is the effects And so we see God through the effects. We know God is omniscient. And when you have a heart that's been cleansed by Christ, you know that since he's omniscient, you can see God in everything, really. It's not pantheism. It's not that God is everything or in everything. It's that God is everywhere present. And I remember when I became a believer, my eyes were open and I literally could see that creation was made by the hand of God, and I never looked at it like that before. It's just amazing. And I was thinking about this morning's Sunday school lesson on Jonah. And when, um, you know, the, the thing that people get hung up with over that particular book, and really the Bible is, come on, you expect me to believe that a man was swallowed by a big fish? I mean, how old do you think I am? And I may have thought that way at one time, but as I was sitting back there and Corky was teaching, what I was thinking as one whose eyes would be opened is, wow, what a God we serve. A God that can appoint a fish to come at the certain time when this miserable backslidden man of God had to cast himself in the water because he's running from God and he's refusing to obey him. What an awesome God we serve. And he stayed in there alive and God kept him for three days before he got spit out. So rather than being all skeptical and critical with an unbelieving heart, I just stand amazed at what our God can do. So in that way, we can see God and we can see God through his word because he reveals himself. Literally his character, his person. That's the way if we say, I want to know you, God. And we have to read this. Just have to. There's no substitute for it. We can see God through his word. And of course, we can see God through creation. I'm reminded of what Job said in 42.5. After all he had been through, all the suffering and all the loss, what were some of his very final words? I mean, what could possibly come out of such a, a, a season of misery? And he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Even suffering can open us up to the wonders and the love and the mercies and the grace of God. It's incredible. Kent Hughes tells a story of a lady by the name of Anna Penica in 1982 in Los Angeles. In the Los Angeles Times, I'm sorry, I carried the story of Anna Penica, 62-year-old woman who had been blind from birth. At age 47, she married a man she met in a Braille class. And for the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the scene for both of them until he completely lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. Miss Pennica had never seen the green of spring or the blue of a winter sky. Yet because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she never felt resentful about her handicap and always exuded a remarkably cheerful spirit. Then in October of 81, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the rare congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. And Miss Penica saw for the first time ever. The newspaper account does not record her initial response. But it does tell us that she found that everything was so much bigger and brighter than she ever imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others she had known well, other acquaintances were taller or shorter, heavier or skinnier than she had pictured them. Since that day, Miss Penica has hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing morning light. I'm sure the miracle of seeing for the first time is indescribable. Before the surgery, she saw without her eyes. But the surgery corrected any misjudgment she made as she envisioned how things and people looked. When Christ comes into our hearts, when the presence of God indwells, we see all things more clearly, including who he really is. And what is the absolute greatest thing in the universe, the greatest, greatest thing that has ever existed? And ever will exist but God. And when you've laid your eyes on him. When you've seen him even a shadow a whisper a whisper. Then you have seen or beheld that which is greater or greatest. To see God. We have to forsake ourselves of our idols. And place our trust in him. And surrender in him. And that is a work of Christ. Slowly but surely as we do this, he will do the work of continuing to purify our hearts. To turn us in to what he has, by judicial announcement, made us justified. And let me just say that there is no substitute for purity. We all, especially believers, we want to experience God. And and, and a powerful way to experience God is through praise and worship. And so a lot of times we want to experience God and so we'll sing more songs, the tears will flow, we'll turn the sound system up, whatever, so we can get God, so we can see God. And worship is awesome, but there is no substitute for purity. The Bible specifically says if you want to see God, you have to have a pure heart. Jesus tells us that. Do we want him? Do we want to see him? Do we want a fellowship with him? Let me, char- let me close with this charge from the Apostle Paul in Titus. Chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. May God bless the preaching of his word.